Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. So hello and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR, where we talk to people who are doing things a little bit differently in and around the HR profession. And I'm really delighted to talk to Sean Conning, who's Chief People Officer of DAZN. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just commenting on your hoodie. It's very trendy. Very media. Very media, darling. Very media. Wouldn't have worn this a compass. We've just had a couple of hints there about your kind of HR career path that's taken you into different sectors. And I know that your journey into HR is not the traditional route, like mine, not the traditional route. So just give us a a kind of a potted history of your background, how you got into HR and a bit about your role at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting journey. I think um, going back 20 25 years, no longer than that, actually, 30 years. So via retail, uh, Marks & Spencer, their, their Aidable Management Training Scheme, through to Kingfisher Group and specifically Comet, the electrical retailer. So real blue chip, Tucker, HR, grad yeah. training, not HR. Yeah, certainly for the first two, which, which I'll come back to. On to, um, on to Compass, biggest outsourced caterer in the world. Um, bit of a midlife crisis then, combining... Some consultancy work and starting a couple of businesses of my own, exec coaching with playing poker professionally and carrying the traveling the world, and then back into media, the zone, uh, sports media technology. So, I can't really let that go, Sean. You just have to just tell us a little bit about the poker. I could talk about it for half an hour, but <laughs> which we take to look, it was, it was a passion of mine. If, if any of you are interested, there's a blog on my LinkedIn, it's, it's one of the only blogs I've ever written comparing poker with um, what we can learn from the younger generation of professional poker players. That oh, right, probably, I will go and have a look. My passion. It's about three years old, it's the only thing I think I'll ever publish. So, do you um, still play? No, no, I've got, a, I've got a two and a half year old toddler and a partner. It's a single man's game. Um, as <laughs> in Vegas, uh, which, which were great fun. So, yeah, it's wow. a really interesting journey. And I, I was thinking before we spoke, what are the pivotal points without going through the whole history? And I think you know, M&S, actually, um, going back to 1989, 1990, two or three things that really connected me with HR, even though I wasn't doing HR then. I think I joined on a management training scheme. You were very much... Um, treated as a member of management from day one. I remember picking the wine on my first day as an 18-year-old, which was hilarious, um, picking a cheap bottle of Verno, Vino Verde for £8. Um, I remember... <laughs> wrong. Did you get it wrong? Got it really wrong. In, in Weymouth, um, sitting at a separate dining table. Um, oh, I remember God. my first appraisal being um, my, my store manager. I won't say her name. I'll always remember her name. Uh, comparing me to a long-distance lorry driver because I used to sit with the generally guys that worked in the warehouse, have my breakfast with them, sausage sarni, um, which 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 wasn't the right thing to to do for a for a would-be manager. So interesting questions around culture there, and and, and a couple of other really quick things. You you managed um, generally more mature teams from day one, and I used the 
to manage really loosely because I didn't <laughs> really know how to manage or lead them. But it's, it's a great learning experience. How do you engage and connect with people with 20 years life experience and work experience and get them to connect with you and have a relationship um, and watching many get it wrong, including me, but, but then sometimes getting things right. Um, and also some great commercial basics. So before I completely make M&S look like something that was the very old school, I learned some incredible retail groundings around P&L and proportional layouts, customer flow, which stood me in really good stead. Yeah. So, so M&S quite pivotal. Um, Comet, post-university, I went back to university, I think. The you know, first step into HR was three years in after doing retail roles and strategy roles and a, and a step into reward and shared service, which was a, an interesting transition into HR um, from retail strategy, productivity areas, and, and retail ops. Um, and, then, and then Compass, where... I think Compass was was interesting for a number of reasons. It, it enabled me to step away from Comet after quite a long time, work in a different environment with a with a great chief people officer called Robin Mills, who you know, similar to me is not CIPD qualified. He's now the managing director of Compass in the UK after running the education business and flipping back into HR and out. And you know, me and Robin used to proudly stand at the front of the room and, and talk about how proud we are. We hadn't come from a CIPD room and we weren't CIPD qualified. And look, and that's not a not a slant at CIPD, but it's it, it's something, there are, there are different routes you can come at HR for. So um, I, different I get asked this a lot. I'm not CIPD qualified either, uh, although Karen, my right. co-founder, is. Um, and we often get asked the question, you know, I'm I'm coming into HR, I've been doing HR for a while, should I do my CIPD? What, how would you answer that? I, I think it should be a personal choice based around the learning and growth you're going to get from that programme and that insight, rather than feeling you have to complete something to get a foot in the door and get an interview. I get so frustrated when I read some of the forums online of people being rejected from, from interviews for not having their CIPD yeah. or not being shortlisted or, or, or not even being able to submit an application. Um, so I think if that learning is important to you because you haven't got the right reference points or you didn't do a business degree or you just want to learn and you're interested in it, crack on and do it because um, that's about your own personal growth. Um, but actually, there are so many other sources out such as you know, disruptive HR, other types of qualifications, other experiences you can get that will make you a, a much more rounded HR professional than, than CIPD. Um, so do you look for um, people when you're interviewing or one of your teams interviewing, do you look for people who have taken alternative routes? Do you, do you um, perhaps value that more because that's something that you've done? I think I do. I think it's very important that you you don't project your own experiences and sort of unconscious views of how you've evolved onto what's right in that situation. I think there are certainly some roles where I'd look for a much more technical, traditional set of reference yeah. points, maybe around areas such as employee relations, um, yeah. such as policy development. That doesn't have to come from CIPD for absolute clarity. It could come from a legal background or an employment law background. Um, whereas I think there are other roles, certainly. I love seeing the CVs of partners that have got one or two years in a non-HR role. I love ex-retail managers, right? Big big bias if you're applying a job for me. Bias are okay sometimes. Um, if, if, if you've run retail stores for a couple of years and you've moved into HR, well, 
you know more than the rest of the HR professionals around leading and day-to-day motivation yeah. and behavior than, than any of them. Um, I always so, like to see people who've done the stint in marketing, particularly consumer yeah. marketing as well, because I yeah. think they really get it, don't they? They Absolutely. get that kind of need for attraction rather than pushing stuff onto people, how to differentiate your offering, marketing messaging. So I think yeah. there are some some great alternative routes in. Yeah, and seeing seeing the seeing the um it's a real cliche, but seeing what we do as a as a customer function, and that, that, that sounds a bit a bit cliche, but so, you know, so many HR departments forget why they exist. You know, they exist to help the business be a better place to work to deliver better business results. It, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Um, they they don't exist to to make it harder for people or, or tell them why they can't do things. Um, you know, I, I remember someone very wise saying to me early in my career. Your job's about helping me understand the risk and the challenges when I do something and advise me on the right thing to do, not to tell me why I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. And it really stuck with me. Yeah. So you mentioned about, you know, links with the business, understanding the business, and um, just tell us a little bit about DAZN and the business that you're in at the moment, because it's it's a big company, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's not something that people kind of go, oh, yeah, DAZN. No, so I think well, maybe the, not in the UK. Maybe that's yeah, the- not in the UK. I think it's a really interesting story. Dazone was um, born out of a legacy sports media business that mainly operated in the B two B space. Um, so providing sports content, sports statistics. Many of your listeners will have heard of Opta if they're sports yeah. fans. Yeah. Um, to betting companies, to sports sites, to broadcasters. So that was that was the history. Um, four four and a half five years ago, a few of the execs thought they had some incredible core competence that would enable them to disrupt how sports fans globally consume sport in a consumer environment. Um, started off with, with five of them in an office in Waterloo. They obviously had relationships with rights holders and technology and how you stream. Um, lots of sort of strategic work on why this could work and who the competitors were. And the big thing is we're, we're OTT only, so internet only. So that's the big difference with, um, with a Sky or a BT for yeah. people that are in the UK. Um, which obviously brings lots of lots of huge opportunities. So lots of work happened. And then lo and behold, they thought, well, we're a UK company. Where's the best place to launch? Um, Japan, which, which always makes us laugh. Um, so our first two markets were Japan. We did an exclusive deal. I'd love to JD see the flip price. chart that arrived at that decision. Oh, you know, I love Japan. And, and look, I joined a year, 18 months later to, to help the scale up initially as an interim and a, and a consultant. And one of the highlights, loads of highlights, but one of the highlights has been getting to experience Japan and Japanese culture and the people and our teams there. It's just the most amazing, the most amazing country, huge fondness for Japan. Um, I've never so we, been, you know, um, my oh. husband has spent lots of time over there and he says, you know, increasingly you go to countries, whether they be South America or Europe or, and actually it feels familiar because there's so many points of reference that, Whereas still Japan, you feel you are in a very, very different place. And, and that's a kind of uniqueness about yeah. it, you know, and I, yeah. I loved it. People are incredible as well. Again, it's not like a cliche, but just I love our teams. There's so much passion, um, so respectful, so excited about what we're doing and do a whole podcast on, on our culture hitting Japan. So but anyway, we launched in Japan and Germany. We're now in Italy, where we're the, one of the host broadcasters of Syria. We're in Spain, where we're very big in motorsport. We're in Canada, where we have NFL. Um, and, and not as visible in the UK. We've just launched a global service. So I'm beginning to get some of my friends that, that enjoy boxing 
um, to recognize our brand in the UK, but but we're a very small player in the UK. It's about testing our platform because yeah. we, we have boxing rights on there, which are great. So it's a really interesting business. Before we lead into the next session, I guess the key thing is that we were born out of this legacy business. So the legacy business was established. Um, it was actually the fastest growing business in the FTSE 250 before our main shareholder took them private in 2011, 12. Um, and that core business has now been divested and, and we've divested some of the, the, the original businesses. So you've gone from being part of a bigger corporate to a more kind of agile, perhaps returning to your startup like roots and yeah which was interesting trying to return to those roots but also as we've scaled dramatically so i think when we talked before lucy i've, I've explained we, we sort of went from five heads to maybe 200 250 and then when the big ramp up happened we were incredibly dependent on the capability and the competence from perform group the, the parent company and without them there's no way we could have scaled as quickly um, however, then, as your strategic priorities change, that business has been divested and it's now Stats Perform, the, one of the biggest sports data providers in, in the world, actually, with Vista Partners um, and, and Access, our shareholders are, are still involved, they still have a minority interest, um, to allow us to focus on this consumer business. So, it's again, it, it, it's a really interesting dynamic of taking some of those legacy approaches from Perform, laying them onto, it's almost gone three points of evolution, Lucy, the, the small five people yeah. disrupting, scale up, let's do what yeah. we want. Oh, shit, we've got to integrate with the with the legacy business and bring in some of their processes. Yeah. Oh, now the legacy business is divested and we want to continue our narrative and we're a little bit confused from an identity perspective. So when you talk about kind of the processes, you you inherited as you as you were able to scale scale up, you were um, part of a bigger organization which presumably had the process, the policy, the, the structures of a so-called grown-up organization, an adult big grown-up organization. Have you kept those as you've returned to perhaps the more agile, pacey style of organization or have you tried to move away from those? Yeah, I think um, we're starting, and I'm starting now with the team to try and move away from some of those. Um, and it's about recognizing where well, we need to do things differently and, and, and listening to our people, that, to be brutally honest, are telling us if we don't do things differently, they'll go and work somewhere else. Um, and we're in a very competitive space for talent around technology and broadcast and OTT, whether that's yeah. Spotify or Amazon or Facebook or and more interestingly, some of the really new cool scale-ups that none of us have heard of, which for some of our people are incredibly attractive. Um, so I think we have to listen. Um, I took the CPO's job last summer, and, and I won't bore you with my history, but I joined as a consultant to help with the scale-up and, and, and then transitioned into a role. And I think the first seven, eight months have been saying, okay, so, so where are the things where me and my team believe we have to change quickly be authentic around where we haven't got things right. So, so that journey has started us off in areas like um, how we listen to, to what the zone is like as a place to work. And historically, we had a very traditional survey with a traditional partner, um, which really, if I'm being honest, wasn't adding any value. It was becoming a tick box of a score. And that, that's not all about the HR team. Some of that's around how, how a business engaged with it and how used and useful the data and the insight was. And, 
and it was completely out of kilter with with how we operate as a business around data and big data analytics. Some senior teams love a big survey, don't they? Because they can kind of tick that box of, oh, well, we've done that, we've listened, and, you know, we can move on now. But as you say, it's not giving you that that heartbeat. It's not giving you that data and insight that, you know, that they would be wanting of their customers, around their customers, in in similar ways with their people. Correct. I I think some of those legacy partners just became very complacent. Um, and they didn't move quick enough. And we're yeah. quite happy to say, actually, we're partnering with Pecom now, who Workday bought two weeks ago. And and we were just incredibly impressed with the the way they, they're so, so sort of client-focused and manager-focused in terms of, okay, I can sort this insight. I'll prioritize it. I'll tell you the three things. I'll do some natural language sentiment for you. And then not only will I do that, I'll give you some micro learning on what you could do on the train on your app for 10 minutes. I'm doing a sales pitch for Pecon. Well, um, it's great. Me, I mean, we've heard really good things about Pecon. And, and great. You know, and you're, so you're another good. voice added to that. You um, know, it, so it, that's one of the things. Uh, and yeah, so that, that's one thing. And I think that's the, that's the foundation because at the moment, um, especially enhanced by COVID, Lucy, I, people ask me how things are going. And, and I don't really know. You know, my... I feel I feel awful saying that. I'm just being very honest. I think we live in a I, as a CPO, I live in a sort of trip advisor feedback culture, which someone will phone me and say, Sean, it's I think it's gonna swear that it's it's terrible, it's awful. We send some X, Y, and Z wrong, it's an awful place to work, everybody's leaving. And then my next call will be, Sean, we love what you and the people team are doing. It's such a step forward with a new exec co-communicating more regularly to us on weekly town halls and the gifting of to say thank you at Christmas was incredible. Um, but it is that sort of trip advisor one five. Do you know, I, you, you just you brought back a, a memory for me. I remember at the BBC, I was forever being told um, morale has never been so low. Do you ever get that? And, and I remember the first time I heard it, I went into a blind panic and someone who'd been in the BBC for years went, they always say that morale has never been so low. And yet... That, you know, it isn't actually, but yeah. there's it's a very personal perspective, isn't right. it? It's, so yeah. excited about Peacock because it can bring some objectivity to that and it can start to demystify the trip advisor and give us more data and more insight and some big data analytics. That's one part. Um, I think the second part we've, we've talked about this before is looking at the um, whatever we want to call it performance management, end of yeah. year, yeah. annual processes um which is just fascinating because i think you know, we we've aligned where we want to go as a business which is much more around our ambition around conversations and around taking charge there's a nice acronym there which i won't say the credit for um <laughs> but making that change and we're right at the front end of that process starts to bump into so many things like how you yeah. use ratings for end of year bonuses another area which you've written about recently um how you used that for you know, succession planning and what you do with your asr so whilst it's a it's, it's a place we have started and we are going to change it because our people are rejecting it and it's it's not right for our business our business changes hourly we're driven by rights and, and what we need to do in product and new distribution yeah. partnerships the whole concept of annual goals is crazy um, it's fascinating. I think sometimes, you know, dismantling big processes is almost harder than leapfrogging it and going to something different in the first place. You know, I think, you know, organizations that have got to start to take away these structures, these monolithic processes that they kind of intuitively know don't add value or they have the research to say that doesn't add value. 
but taking it away, people are used to it, aren't they? It's off. It's really so. It's conditioned really behavior. It's conditioned behavior. Um, we're not going to have a form anymore. We're going to you know, have a conversation, talk about goals yeah. for the next month. What do you mean? Where's the form? Yeah. Where do I capture it? I don't give a yeah. shit where you capture it. Just <laughs> talk about it, have a great conversation, yeah. focus on performance and ambition. That's cool. Um, and that's not, yeah, that's that's nobody's fault. Fault's the wrong word. That's human behavior that yeah. create a dependency. Yeah. Um, and whether that's around ratings or whether it's around yeah, the type of form we use. Yeah, um, or the areas you cover. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's capturing it. Where do I send the objectives to? And it, yeah. How will they and, know what their objectives are if they aren't written down? Well, can't they make a note? It's like, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's really tough. But I'm a massive believer in whatever we call it. You know, translating the ambition of your business into goals and commercial activities that get you closer. I think that's where a lot of people get really confused with ripping performance management out because it's not about stopping having goals and aspirations and actions. It's just about doing it in a much more yeah. human, agile way. Exactly. Where you and and focus really on understanding tasks. what helps drive human performance. Mm. And we know that forms and ratings and once a year goals doesn't. So what yeah. does, you know, and, and tapping into that. I'm so we're in the, we're in the middle of that. Let's, um, let's have a, a chat because I know this is something that's dear to your heart and you are it's an overused word, but you are passionate about the kind of next generation of um, HR professionals and what do they look like and what skills should they have and how can you help? And because we've talked about this in the past, but, you know, if you were advising people, you know, who were thinking about going into HR or in their first HR job, what would you be saying to them about things for them to focus on? It's really interesting. Again, I think a few chats we've had, we've talked a little bit about commerciality. And I remember hearing some of your, your previous podcast um, contributors making some really great points, but, but talking about what is commerciality? And, and for me, it, it's not about being able to trot the figures out parrot-like on a Monday morning about what happened in retail the previous week at a trading meeting. It, it's not about that. I think sometimes... That's how many HR professionals, certainly my MS days, if you, if you know the figures on a Monday, you're commercial. Well, you're not commercial. You, you can memorize certain numbers. So I think in those early days, it's around how do you really get under the skin of a business and understand what its drivers are from a customer and a profitability and a delivery and a social responsibility standpoint. And then once you can walk in the shoes of the, the challenges and the pressures and the aspirations of those leaders, you've got a much better chance of coming up with people-based solutions that actually make the boat go faster using a rowing term. We do a bit of work with Steve Williams, the Olympic row, and he uses that term a lot. And I think that's really hard when you're early into your career. And, and, and again, we've talked about, I'm not a massive networker. This is one of the first podcasts I've ever done because <laughs> I, I, quite, I quite like the way you see the world from an HR perspective and many others, I don't, I, I don't get huge value from going to a CIPD conference in Leeds. I shy away from the network groups about pure HR. Um, but I do love people. I love talking, as you can see. And, and early in my career, I, I, I joined a Kingfisher on their, their graduate scheme. I was very fortunate, but I think we're all fortunate if you step back. I had a lot of great people around me. You know, some of my um, alumni or whatever you call them, people that I, that I grew up, they're, they're, in, they're in really influential jobs now, you know, 
Latif, the managing director for CBC Capital Partners. I, I lived with the, the CEO, WH Smiths, when I was 20, and we both lived in a flat in Wilston. Wouldn't thank me for saying that. So I don't want to get too name dropping, but great people around me. And it was about you going to the pub with them and being inquisitive about how their week had been and mm. you know, what sort of things were they working on. And, and you know, my team often say to me, oh, you, you know, it sounds really big-headed, but you seem to know how, how to zone works in, in every part. And I think some of it's just about being nosy and inquisitive and interested and listening and then stepping back and saying, okay, so, so how does that work from a, from a people perspective? Um, I think most this idea people, of being truly well-networked, as you say, is not about going to the opening of an envelope and, and standing there with a warm glass of wine and, and chatting to, to everybody. It is about building genuinely deep, rich relationships with people who are outside of your sector, who are outside of your profession, who you admire for one reason or another, and bringing that outside intelligence in and sharing that and being generous with it. I think the the, the concept of networking, of the old school networking events, networking events, I don't think I've ever networked at an event. I've networked over coffee. I've networked about going seeing someone in their workplace and asking them about their job and what they do and and seeing that passion. That's what creates the network. Isn't I've it? got I've got cold sweats now because the, the, those events when you rock up and you walk in the room and you've got a name badge on. I'm really social. Like chuck, chuck, chuck me in a pub anywhere or yeah. with a group of friends at a party or a football yeah. match. Um, yeah. I, I, like I say, I love people, but but those events, I, there's something around. I used to sort of reject the people that went to them, which is really unfair because I, I felt there was this sort of this disingenuous progression to the top and, and my own their agenda rather than doing the right thing. Yes. Whereas I think when you like you say genuine relationships, I think partners are really important as well. Uh, you had Joel on last week and Joel Barnett, and I've got a handful of partners over thirty years that I've almost developed um, friendships with and relationships yeah. because for, primarily because they're really really good at what they do and they've delivered a great service but then over time you find common ground around values and, and points of difference as well yeah. and those networks have been invaluable to me um so i think the, the commerciality bit really understand it um i think experience different things challenge think about how you can help your stakeholders make the boat move quicker not slow it down um so you're you're not one of those that and i know this is a bit of a, a button to press for you but you're not one of those that thinks that hr must have a seat at the top i knew what you were going to say i knew what you were going to say if ever you want to it's um, like light blue touch paper and rant <laughs> if you ever want to elicit a response from me on linkedin or social media another good friend in my network like james cummings who's got an hr interim agency up in Burma, he posted something called see at the table once and he saw me get into a huge dialogue beneath uh, i think i struggle to think of another sort of functional area of discussion that's still happening 26 years later after the first time i heard it that's why it presses my button i remember when i first came into hr i was doing study roles we need a seat at the table and i didn't really get it then to be honest because you you, you I hate the term even, but if there is such a thing as a seat at the table, you, you earn it. You're not given it. You don't demand it. It's about you know how you connect with leaders in the business, that the effort you put into those relationships, how you walk in their shoes, how you show them you can make you know the world a better place for them, whether it's commercially or ethically or the talent in their team. Um, it's, it, it's not about being told you've 
you've got a seat at the table. So it's incredibly frustrating. And look, again, I think we've, we've talked about this as well. Uh, I think that's probably the strongest part of my armory is the chief people officer. I'm in the I'm probably in the bottom one percent of technical CPOs in the UK, and actually I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. It's about the relationship piece and the applying the commercial judgments in those relationships. And I tell you what, I've got it wrong lots of times as well. Yeah. And there's probably there there's 10, 15 people in their career. It'd be quite funny if I name them now, you know, challenging CEOs or stakeholders. I'm sure there's a couple at disown, even though we've got some great people that, that actually I couldn't crack, right? And yeah. I tried everything. Um that's that's okay, right? Sometimes I'd have to go and focus my efforts and my energy somewhere else. Yeah. Or or go work somewhere else, yeah. right? Yeah. Don't don't carry on staying there, feeling yeah. that you're not valued or yeah, yeah. cracking. So yeah, sure, bit, of, that, bit of a hot button. That was fantastic. I've loved talking to you as ever. Some really interesting insights there, and and some challenging stuff as well for for us all to think about. Thanks for making the time. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lucy. And yeah, hopefully come back and do a follow-up in a year or something. That sounds um, good. It was was good fun. And we'll do it face-to-face by then, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. I need to get out of the house. (laughs) (laughs) See you soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.